So I'd like to start by saying welcome, thoroughly welcome. Everyone is quite thoroughly welcome. Um, seems more important than ever to say to say that. Uh, whatever views or opinions you might hold, or whatever your motivations are for joining tonight, however you express yourself, whatever you do for a living, however you identify, whatever your background, you're thoroughly welcome. And I'm glad you're here. So my name is Kodo. Uh, I'm a, a priest in training at San Francisco Zen Center, the city center. And the inspiration, the impetus for this talk tonight was um, I saw a teacher for the first time who I'd never seen before. To say I saw him isn't quite right. His name is Jarvis Masters. Jarvis Masters is also known as the Buddhist on death row by uh, his biographer. So Jarvis, Jarvis has been in San Quentin uh, for 40 years, thereabouts. And he gave his first Dharma talk ever 10 days ago. He's a, he's a quite a dedicated practitioner. He gave his first Dharma talk at San Francisco Zen Center and he did it by telephone, telephone to someone outside, Lee, Lee Lesser, who held up her telephone to the mic so that we could hear Jarvis Masters by Zoom. And every, Every few minutes, this recording would come on on the, on the call and say something like, this call is being recorded and monitored. And every 15 minutes, we would get this warning. You have 60 seconds left, would say the robotic voice. And then the call would cut off. We would either sit in silence or Lee would say something. And then in a few minutes, Jarvis would be back. And he would start again. So that was that was the, the the structure that was the setup of his very first Dharma talk, right? I can't imagine under those kind of constraints, and being nonetheless uh, all the while being located in a place that Jarvis describes either either you go mad or you figure out how to survive. You figure out how to find some freedom amidst a challenge like that, and I. The, the reason I'm inspired to talk about Jarvis and sort of the practice path that led my mind toward is even, even, even in that setup, the phone and the Zoom and the recording and all that, what came through was someone who had dedicated years, of, years to practice who communicated with such beautiful kindness and clarity and wisdom. It was really touching to me. And I also noticed that he could really listen during the Q&A at the end. He could really listen and respond from a place of freedom. 
so to zoom out, what this reminded me of was just, just how powerful the Dharma sounds and how powerful it looks and how penetrating it is when, as for Jarvis, it's a, it's a matter of life and death. To hear him speak about the Dharma, it was like all of the, the little ways that, that I might um, cloud it up or um, play with the Dharma. For him, this was, it really mattered. And there was something about that that was so potent. If you get a chance, I really recommend listening to the talk. It's up on sfcc.org. So I want to explore an episode from, from his bio and some of the, the Dharma that that opens up. One that, uh, that really pretty well illustrates how, how Jarvis's capacity to, um, to live wisely in difficult circumstances, I mean, amidst being taunted and harmed and uh, um, confronted and his ability to be with this and respond from a place not of conceit and not of what might be habitual tendencies of destruction, um, but from a place of, of love and wisdom. So the, the outline of the episode is something like this. Jarvis is in, he's outdoors in what he calls the yard at San Quentin. He's out at the, he's out in the yard and he becomes aware of the fact that there are four men who are about to harm another. There are four men who are, they're actually about to kill a fifth guy, another guy who they think has, um, um, talk to the authorities about something. The four men and the guy about to be harmed and Jarvis. Jarvis comes to know that this is gonna happen. And his instinct is no, this can't, this can't happen. I've gotta do something. His first move, he goes over to the man who's about to be hurt, killed. Um, in some measure to notify him, this is what's going on. This is the story that's fueling that, the what's about to come your way. Uh, tell me your side of things. So he talks to that guy and then he does something amazing. Jarvis goes over to the other four guys and something about the way that he intervenes is pretty remarkable. He goes over to the other four guys and he's like, no, you can't, you can't do this. You're not in, you're, you're being set up. You're being set up to harm this guy and you're mistaken. Don't do it. That's his first tack. And one of the four guys starts confronting Jarvis about it. He's like, no, um, he starts, he starts making personal attacks, calling Jarvis names and like really, um, uh, not hearing what Jarvis has to say. And Jarvis respond, Jarvis's response is the amazing thing. He hears the guy 
confronting him, like trying to provoke him. And he smiles and he keeps explaining. It's like he had the capacity in that moment to hold what was being the, the conflict that, that was trying to be drawn out of him. And instead he responded in such a way that he was able to turn the situation, change the perception of those four guys and save that man's life. So in a, in a very concrete way, the, in that instance, Jarvis's Dharma practice saved at least that one guy's life. So yeah, I, know, I recognize for, for many of us, our context, our context is very different. We're, we are not in the yard at San Quentin. Our, 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 um, our Dharma practice might not save lives in the sort of, that sort of way, that kind of direct way. But I think something that all of us bring into the room is the memory of these kind of clarifying moments. These, um, and re really when I think about, when I think about these moments where things really become clear, it's often around the time of loss. That's the way it's been for me. Like I, I was operating in a world that, that functioned in a certain kind of way. Some unexpected loss came and there was an insight. Oh, things were not as they seemed. And somehow in these moments like divorce or death of a loved one, or, or some, some sort of quaking of a foundation stone, right? How is it so? But there are, it just becomes, something becomes so much more clear in terms of our priorities. So I like to think of those, those times of loss, unexpected loss, especially as moments of clarity. You may know the Buddhist teacher, Norman Fisher. He wrote, uh, he wrote a piece in a book that appears with some, some teaching by Jarvis uh, from 2010. And uh, Norman writes about the time shortly after his, uh, his best friend died suddenly. And Norman has, a, has something to say about practice and how potent practice is during times like these. when truly the, the, the matters of life and death are so close. And this is how Norman puts it. He says, all too many people in times like these just don't have the heart to do spiritual practice. But these are the best times for practice because the motivation is so clear. Practice is not simply a lifestyle choice or a refinement, he says. There is no choice. It's a matter of survival. The tremendous benefit of simple meditation practice is most salient in these moments. And having exhausted all avenues of activity that might change your outward circumstances, 
and given up on any other means of finding inner relief. There's nothing better to do than to sit down on a chair or a cushion and just be present with your situation. I, I register um, in this passage, I register the tone of both his grief and the courage involved in um, that kind of practice. One line in here really struck me. Best times for practice because the motivation is so clear. Practice is not simply a lifestyle choice or a refinement. That really, that says Jarvis Masters to me. So these moments, these moments of clarity, when the practice isn't a lifestyle, actually, and in which all of the, all the clutter falls away. And it's like, it's like a tree in autumn that goes from full of leaves to completely fallen away. And then in the winter light, it's just twig, branch, bark, trunk, root, all the shapes and twists and turns we couldn't see when the tree was full. Something so clear. I think the one of the one of the teaching suggestions that comes to me for this is that at times like these, when the the leaves all fall, in these moments of clarity, there they reveal so much about our deeper tendencies that we can't see when they're covered over, and that includes our clingings as well as our virtues, like Norman's grief and his courage. It include and includes our our stinginess and bargaining, and it includes our renunciation. And can show us, maybe even before we can give it language, something that the writer Elena Ferrante says, those parts of our experience that are crouched and silent. It's a potent time. So I'm thinking again about Jarvis Masters and what I can learn from just someone, someone like that. He can't influence what he wears, where he goes, what he eats, how much he sleeps. And somehow in the midst of this, he has freedom, a measure of freedom. And his transformation is based on a on a, a turning of the mind, actually. You can almost imagine Jarvis saying saying this uh, this piece that comes out of ancient Buddhist text. It goes like this. I felt discontent at seeing only conflict to the very end. Then I saw an arrow here, hard to see 
embedded in the heart. Pierced by this arrow, people dash about in all directions. But when the arrow is pulled out, they don't run and they don't sink. So just giving it a minute for our, our discussion so far to, to breathe. It's a lot in that. I have to think there's some truth in that. And in Jarvis can't control any of these outer circumstances but there's some relationship to his heart or some relationship to experience through which freedom. Something pointing to the essential there, I think. And to turn a little bit, as I've been emphasizing, Jarvis's contact with this, uh, with suffering and stress, this inevitable contact with suffering and stress is something that, that to my mind has driven a profundity and a depth into his practice and makes me ask the question, what's at the heart of the matter? What's at, what is essential to the practice? It seems pretty clear that, that it has something to do with the heart and relating to experience. I find it instructive when considering this question of what is at the heart of the practice to recall that there are things that actually the Buddha discovered that he didn't teach. That he was... He gave himself the task of, um, of guiding others in a path to freedom. And there were things that he decided not to share because they didn't serve that purpose. There's this pretty classic anecdote of the, the Buddha walking, walking with walking with monastics through the forest and pausing and picking up a handful of simsapa leaves. And he says something like, monks, is, are the number of leaves in my hand greater or lesser than all of these leaves you see in the forest? And they're, they're, they're sharp, sharp monks. And they say, oh, of course, all these leaves in the forest, they're more than the leaves in your hand, of course. And the Buddha's response affirms that, of course, and then draws the connection between what the Buddha's discovered and what the Buddha taught. The next step of the story, what did he teach? After after holding this handful of leaves, he then says, what, what did I, and what is it that I've taught? I've taught suffering and stress. 
I've taught that this is the arising of suffering and stress. I've taught that this is the cessation of suffering and stress. And I've taught that this is the path leading to the cessation of suffering and stress. Because these things are connected to the goal. They're connected to freedom. feels important here to take a turn and say, I'm not suggesting we go looking for trouble. I think we, um, we encounter enough suffering and stress. We don't need to go looking for it. But I think there is something profound as, as, I, as I see in Jarvis's freedom, maintaining some kind of relationship. And this becomes a point of inquiry is how to how to, how to keep a close and intimate relationship with such, such important truths in our lives. Life and death matters without, without being rolled over or uh, ensnared or entangled by them. How do we do that? That's an open question. Also in the service of not going looking for trouble and yet keeping a close connection, the tradition has this, has this uh, practice called the five daily reflections. And these are, these are recommendations, things to, things to contemplate once a day. Uh, whatever, your, whatever your lifestyle, whoever you are, whatever you're doing, to, Take a little bit of time to remember these five facts at least once a day in the service of staying close. And the first is, I am subject to aging. I've not gone beyond aging. I'm subject to illness. I've not gone beyond illness. I'm subject to death. I've not gone beyond death. I will grow different and separate from all that is dear and appealing to me. That's a tough one. That one really stings for me. And the fifth. I'm the owner of my actions and heir to my actions. Born of my actions, related through my actions, and have actions as my arbiter. And whatever I do, for good or for ill, to that I will fall heir. Five facts. Not to remember them to bring ourselves down. <laughs> Far from it, actually. Rather, um, my experience with these is actually they bring some measure of levity into the mind. It's counterintuitive. But spending time with the five reflections, they weaken the influence of greed and hatred and delusion. They, they undermine the core roots of suffering. And there's something they keep our practice realistic. They keep us in touch with these things that are so real. 
in turn, the five daily reflections have an effect on our daily conduct because they, they, um, they help us work out our perceptions. In the text, they call it intoxications of youth, into being intoxicated with youth, being intoxicated with health, these sorts of things. So it's some simple way, some simple way to stay in touch with these facts of life that um, work their way into our heart. I want to say again in a slightly different way that the, the, the practice of the five reflections and Dharma practice in general, it's not, uh, it's not all dark. Might have that impression when we emphasize so much suffering, the importance of suffering and stress and staying close to it. So to say it in a different way, the, the suffering and the arising of stress are the first two of the noble truths. Their companions are the cessation of suffering and stress and the path leading to its end. And I think we get a feel for this in our in ourselves and certainly in Jarvis's story. It's not only suffering, but it's also kindness and beauty. Yeah, it's not all it's not all dark and doom and gloom, but there there's plenty of dharma and experience and dharma of delighting in it, savoring the dharma, savoring the freedom. So much room for joy in dharma practice. So much room for joy. And just the, the exquisite nature of a, of a mind that's not under the influence of greed and hatred and delusion. So open question, yes. I offer five reflections as a way to sort of stay intimate with the clarity of the essential difficult facts of life. Those things we recognize when unexpected loss makes its way into our lives. But I'm really, I'm, I'm curious and I'm going to turn the question to you very soon. <laughs> what about you? How do you stay connected to what's essential in your practice? I mean, it could be, you, you might have a commitment to Zazen. You might have a commitment to simply holding the question, what's important in my practice? It's not uncommon for people to post a list of the bodhisattva precepts and ask themselves, yeah, how am I doing with my ethical commitments? And a whole host of other practices. Whatever it is, whatever the shape of your practice, however you stay connected to what's essential, I hope that you will, um, I hope that you'll take some time to appreciate, appreciate it appreciate your own your own efforts and appreciate the fruits of those efforts um, and I hope you continue walking the path in earnest turning this question 
What's important? What's important now? What's important now? Yeah, may that be so. Maybe to close, just a final word of appreciation for Jarvis Masters visiting San Francisco Zen Center by telephone, by other telephone, by Zoom 10 days ago. Um, yeah, I felt thoroughly touched by his, his presence and his expression of the Dharma. And I will be sure to share the link with you in the chat before we, before we part. But let's uh, open up for some conversation, shall we?